What's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back with a fresh episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey into the minds of successful entrepreneurs, investors, and operators. As we learn more about their secret sauce, we hope you find yours too. The next three episodes are very special to us because of what's happening around the tech community. This series is focused on strong female founders and their unique perspectives in starting companies. In the first episode, we talk with Bebe Chui, former CMO of LegalZoom and co-founder of Atrium, a new legal entity focusing on post-accelerator ventures. From her start in a traditional law firm to taking time off to kitesurf, Bebe has proven success in both work and life. What's Bebe's secret sauce? Stay tuned to find out. Bon appétit! So you're a lawyer by training, and then you started a legal tech company and became CMO at LegalZoom. Now you're co-founding Atrium with Augie. Is it Augie? Yeah, Augie Rakow. Mm-hmm. And Justin Khan. So in your own words, how did you find or found Atrium? So all of us are repeat entrepreneurs. I should also add that we have a fourth member in the founding team uh, called Chris Smoke. We want to tackle a big problem, and this is like a $96 billion problem. All of us have been either entrepreneurs in the past or served entrepreneurs as lawyers, uh, myself both, right? And we find that there's a huge gap between the way that lawyers work and the way that the companies that they serve work. So how did you guys meet? How the four of you meet? Yeah, so apparently Justin and I never ran into each other, but we had 47 mutual friends. He was very vocal about uh, the new project that he became enamored with, and he was just asking around, you know, like, does anyone know anyone who has um, been in legal tech before, has been a lawyer before, he was just interviewing everyone. And multiple friends texted him within one hour saying, you should go meet Bebe. He texted me, and 30 minutes later, I showed up in my apartment. <laughs> so how, how really did fast. you become the right fit for starting Atrium, right? So can you yeah. share a little bit more about your experience before starting Atrium? I am a lawyer through and through. I think that how I view myself is I'm a lawyer that is entrepreneurial about delivering legal services. I started traditional practice, like a good Asian girl, right? (laughs) You know, went to law school right after college and then practiced law the old-fashioned way, joined a litigation boutique that focused on employment. I really enjoyed the practice of law, like helping clients identify issues. For example, you know, one of the cases was a lesbian couple comes in and tries to challenge the Family Medical Leave Act on whether they are considered to be family. And at that time, it's very controversial, very rewarding work. However, really did not like the business of delivering law because it's based on the billable hour, which does not reward efficiency because the longer you work, the more money you make. And I made a career out of delivering legal services in alternative ways, such as like project billing and, you know, subscription services and many of the modern business models that have become very successful in marketing and consulting and other service areas. So Elton and I don't really have a legal background, actually at all. And we're very curious about the structure of a legal tech company. Are there more of a legal company that happens to be tech enabled or more of a tech company that happens to disrupt legal uh, industries? That's such a good question. Last week, I met with the CTO of One Medical, as uh, many of us in the Bay Area knows. Her team, you know, also Asian American CEO, right? Her team focuses on making healthcare more accessible. And we discussed this exact issue. And she's like, 
One of the first fundamental questions you have to answer is, are you guys people powering technology or technology powering people? <laughs> the answer to this question does depend on the nature of what we're trying to disrupt, right? So we are somewhere like One Medical. It's a continuum. It's a spectrum. So we're somewhere in between where I believe the processes of you know, onboarding, customer service, and document filing, that those types of things are technology first, but then the actual expertise is human first, because like medical, some of the more sophisticated knowledge um, just cannot be replaced with technology yet. To contrast that with something like Uber, which is clearly people powering technology in that, you know, in the near future, we have driverless cars and we may not even need people in that whole equation. So I would say there's a continuum. So when services are more or less replaceable by machine 100%, then it's going to be more just uh, technology focused. And when the expertise is way more custom, way more specialized, then it's going to be more human-based. Can you explain more of what Atrium does? Yeah, so Atrium serves companies as their corporate counsel. We specialize, however, in venture law and high-growth startups. So the other well-known law firms in our space would be Gunderson, Wilson-Sonsini, Fenwick, you know, those types of companies that serve both like YC companies as well as enterprises like Google, Facebook, etc. But specifically focus on venture and high growth companies, right? Yes. And is that correct. a big assumption that, you know, it's going to continue to have a lot of these companies in the future? Or, you know, maybe companies are going to be fewer startups in the future and there's not as much business in this industry. How do you think about I guess the trends that drive the the founding of this company. Yeah, actually, if you look at Mattermark infographics, Series A's have been increasing over the last 10 years, year by year. So we've seen more and more accelerators come about. I think WeWork, this beautiful space that we sit in, is also a testament to the fact that this is a growing trend and not a shrinking trend. And, you know, we see companies everywhere and all of these companies have the potential to become a very successful high growth company. So can you share with us where you grew up? What is your ethnic background? And how did that play a role in terms of who you are today? Yeah. So first of all, um, my name is Bebe. And it's so funny because someone else was like, hey, the other day, they're like, hey, do you, what's your Chinese name? I'm like, no, I didn't just pick a American name to convert to. Like, this would not be it. It's not like my parents were watching South Park and they're like, you know, like, maybe she should just be named Bebe because it's funny, right? But it's actually a Chinese name and it's like a pet name, actually. So I was born in Shanghai, actually, to parents that are both computer engineers. And I moved to the U.S. because my father was pursuing a math PhD in computer science, actually. So we moved here into Ohio. So I um, grew up in Ohio as one of two Asian families. I remember growing up, the only identity that was even Asian American um, in my environment was when Aladdin, like the Disney movie, came out. And then people were like, oh my god, are you Princess Jasmine? I'm like, no, 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 wrong continent, <laughs> wrong place. So it's like this very, very middle America situation. I am grateful, though, because I do feel like I understand America very much so. And so, you know, I, I do understand where some of the ignorances come from. It's due to a lack of exposure. In that regard, I've had a very unique Asian American upbringing. Mm -hmm. And how did that play a role in who you are today? The way I view myself because of that whole experience is that 
I certainly faced certain, like like I mentioned, um, ignorant assumptions that people had just because they've never been exposed to Asians before, right? Like I recall I was walking home from school one day and the soccer mom just stopped in the middle of the road and she was like, honey, are you an exchange student from Japan? Like, do you speak English? Can I give you a ride home? It's that kind of thing. But she was so nice and well-motivated. So it wasn't like, you know, discrimination in, in the way that we think of, right? So I have a very unique understanding of it. Like, I don't attribute all misunderstandings to a sense of racism. So I've grown accustomed to explaining our culture in a way that is introductory to people mm-hmm. that don't know anything about it. Do you feel like you grew up more with Asian American roots and upbringings because you did immigrate from Shanghai? Mm-hmm. Or do you feel like because you were in Ohio, because of the surrounding, you grew up more American? Yeah, I, I think what else is missing is that family component, mm-hmm. right? So it's funny, I actually identify with being super Chinese culturally because my parents mm-hmm. forced me to speak Chinese at home. You know, when I respond in English, they're like, I don't understand, right? Or like, they're like, yeah. Tim yeah. <laughs> you know? Can you read and write? Yes, I can read and write oh. everything. So it's, it's because of them, and I'm really grateful for that. On the other hand, culturally, I'm very American. I mean, like, from a personality perspective, I'm outspoken. You know, I'm, I'm very American in that way. So I actually identify with being polar American and polar Chinese. And the middle ground of what it must have been like to grow up in somewhere like the Bay Area, where there's actually, like, an Asian American culture, is a little foreign to me. How about professionally? How has that affected your career decisions. For example, we know that Asian parents love doctors, love lawyers, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you pursued law, but now you're pursuing entrepreneurship and tech. So, Oh, absolutely went into law because of my parents. (laughs) You know, they're basically like, here are your options. And I'm like, well, I'm not good at science, right? So I'll be a lawyer. And I found that. I always liked philosophy. I always liked economics and the liberal arts. So I thought, that would have been a really good fit for me. However, you know, after practicing, I realized that the way the business model exists today just isn't a good fit for my personality. And I, what we use in the startup world is pivoted my career mm. into doing it in a way that, that fits me and that I really enjoy. And how did your parents react to it when you made that pivot? Oh, yes. It was like a long journey of trust <laughs> establishment. The first daring thing that I did, right, was actually... I left a law firm in the middle of a legal recession. This is like 09-ish, where to have a legal job was like a luxury, and people were very lucky to have a job. We, In fact, like the firm was getting, you know, letters from law students that were graduating saying, like, I will pay you to have the internship. I, at that time, decided that it would be really fun to write a book about lawyers in modern China, because that's a topic that was previously unexplored. So I quit my job randomly, right? And told my parents, hey, listen, like, I need to write this book. It's really important to me. And they're like, excuse me? Like, what, like, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is completely doesn't make sense. Like, so-and-so doesn't have a job, right? And you do. Just keep it. Like, what are you going to do with this book? Like, how much money are you going to make? Yeah. And maybe that did train me to be a good entrepreneur later on. Yeah. So and I was like, you know what? You know, I feel like I just need to take some time off, right? And I quit my job without any promise. Went to China, traveled for a year, assembled materials, interviewed judges, prosecutors, public defenders, 
and wrote a book about it. And I remember my parents were so stressed out the entire time and they were like, what, what is the end goal? Like, that's the, always the question. Like, what is this amounting to? Like, how is your career going to benefit from this? You know, who's going to publish this? And these are questions that I didn't have an answer for whatsoever. What's so funny? My dad said the same exact thing when we do, when we're starting the podcast. podcast. That's the first question was, how much money you're going to make? What are you yeah. going to do with it? And what's the point of this? What, what, yeah, exactly. What is the point, right? And I'm like, you know what? I think the point is I just want to do yeah. it. Like, it's just, there's no, you know, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, right? But it did push me, I will say, to find find a way to make it also economic and valuable to society. Because I do think it's important to be able to make the business work too, right? Like ideas sometimes can't exist always and sustain itself without the practical Implications. So, then. did you publish the book? Yeah. So then I ended up publishing the cool. book to a um, New York academic press, right? And now it's in every law library in the world. I'm happy to say. So. Yeah. Whoa. What's the yeah. easiest way to get a hold of it? So check it out. If yeah. So you can check it out on WorldCat, which is like the International Library of Research. It's also on Amazon. It's called Lawyers in Modern China. So this is the biggest victory. I gave it to my dad for Christmas, right? He's been yelling at me for months, and I'm like. Hey, guess what? You know, I have a royalty check. I'm like, it is in every law school that you were upset that I didn't get into, that this book got into. Okay. Harvard, Stanford, you know, like all the US news top 10 in your face. You know? And then he was like, how much is the royalty check? But at that point, he started, this is the pivotal moment where he started to trust my decisions. He's like, okay, like this is, wasn't a bad decision after all. Maybe I should rethink my approach and whatnot, right? And so every moment after that was just like incremental risk taking. It's like, you know, going up the, you know, stakes in a Vegas hotel or gambling room. It's just like I'm, you know, raising my dad at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, doubling down every doubling single time. Doubling down every single more. time. Yeah, I love and that. Yeah, yeah, you got to ease it in, right? Like you just have to ease it in. Like yeah. do small little like trust, you know, exercises. And then it actually makes sense when I say like, hey, I'm just going to go surf for six months and then come back and probably find an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, you know? I love the analogy and I think I'm going to it's going to stick in my mind and our minds going forward like kind of raising on your dad in terms yeah. of betting. Um, but tangibly what kind of advice would you give our listeners who are in those positions where they have a side hustle or they want to take that leap of faith and they're just trying to do something that's kind of risky? Yeah, well, I think we just addressed the parental piece and that's like it, that depends on whether your relationship with your parents is important to you. For me, it was. So I took it easy, right? Like I incrementally try to gain their trust, which may not be everyone's prerogative. Taking incremental risk, I believe, is like the approach that has been methodical throughout my entrepreneurial career. Entrepreneurship is all about risk, and risk is only profitable when managed. You're going to take it. You're just going to take it in the manner that is the smartest. I love that point because at business school right now, we talk about you know taking risk as entrepreneurs and, and venture capitalists taking risks. But actually, they're actually relatively risk averse in terms of their mentality. They actually yeah. de-risk things. Because if you don't manage risk, that's gambling. And you know time is precious. You don't have the chance to do it again. So you don't want to gamble with your career with your resources, um, that's not responsible. So I think entrepreneurship, the root of it is not just like, oh, let's follow my heart and gamble in a random fashion. It's more about, okay, this is a risk that I want to take. Ask yourself why, and then ask yourself, like, how is it calculated to 
help you achieve that goal that you want to achieve, whatever it may be. Tangibly in my career, like I have never not received a paycheck, actually. So so this technique is what I call moonlighting, which is that, you know, you first have an idea, but don't quit your job immediately, right? Like you can find ways to validate this idea through just recreational activity, like on the weekends or at night. This is also testing how passionate you actually are about this thing, because like if you're not passionate about it, at the end of the workday, you just won't do it. However, if you're tired, you're exhausted, and you're still like, oh my God, now I can do this, that is something that is an indicator that you will stick with it and succeed in it. Did you moonlight for every transition you had? Not every. So the first one, for sure, because that's the hardest step to take. Those of us Asians, like we're in finance, we're in, you know, we're doctors, we've invested so much in our career. For the first step that I took, I um, performed moonlighting. Maternity fee, my first company, was acquired by LegalZoom. That's how I came to be an executive at LegalZoom, actually. I worked there for two years, finished my, what we call uh, a you know, earn out agreement as a part of the acquisition agreement, right? So finished that, but I negotiated to sort of like be on payroll, right? And I gave myself sort of a, I'm like, you know what, I need four to six months to figure out my next steps, you know, and in those four to six months, I need to first relax, right? Get paid and then to go sailing around the world a little bit, which I did. And then I went surfing a little bit. And then Sure enough, I came back. I met Justin at just just as my last paycheck was <laughs> hitting the bank, and then I, you know, got a first atrium paycheck. So last month, so it's it's been yeah, it, it bridged it. I met my no gap in paycheck. Role. Congrats! Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> we talked a lot about being Asian American throughout the whole conversation, but how does being female specifically affected your whole experience? Yeah, I'm certainly also in a male-dominant industry of legal, so I have to say that I live and breathe in a sea of very competent men all the time, you know? And so it is interesting, like this is the type of question that I continue to explore with a cohort of female entrepreneurs. We're a very rare breed, actually, so it's a fine balance, really, is to compete competently amidst our peers. Don't see gender where it doesn't make a difference, but then also acknowledge where it does make a difference. For example, I always turn out to be the one who is in charge of culture, that kind of thing. So like HR, culture, right? Like marketing and these within the executive roles, like these skew female. And one can see that as like, oh, this is like gender discrimination. But I don't see it that way. I actually think that these are unique areas that women can offer a lot of value for, especially as an Asian woman, right? To be like very in tune with how people are reacting, how people are feeling around you, you know, taking the temperature of how stressed your people around you are. It turns out is a huge asset to managing your employees and people around you. So uh, personally, I just never thought that me being female has hampered opportunities of any kind. And I'm, I'm very lucky in, in that. And I know that that isn't every female's experience. I mean, looking back at your career path, it seems like you've done very well. And if you were to look back 10 years, would you tell your younger self some, some advice? I would definitely say that follow, 
really follow your passion and money will follow. That's something that I never thought was practical, you know, growing up. But looking back, that's just what it is. You're going to provide the most value to society and be your happiest when you are the happiest and when you're pursuing things that don't feel like work. You know, so that's really my goal is to spend every hour of my day doing things that don't feel like work. Do you wake up doing what you love? Yes. I'm like, I can't wait to get to this office, actually. Yeah. We care about learning more about Atrium in terms of what it's, what's its main focus right now and what's the future for Atrium for the next six months or next five years? Yeah. So we are developing what we're calling a Series A prep package, right? So we are encountering a lot of um, entrepreneurs that are graduating incubators like YC and like, you know, 500 tech stars, whatever. And they're trying to raise their first round and it's going to make a huge difference. In that period, there's a lot of uncertainty such as who are the investors. And there are a lot of business as well as legal questions that come up. So your documents have to be in order. Finally, you've been neglecting it for a long time. You, you know, used a lot of forms online, which is fine because you didn't know whether you're going to be like a real thing or not, right? But now you are becoming a real thing. So it's important for to get your legal documents in order. We call that like cleanup of ho- corporate hygiene. And then there's a whole like, you know, how do you raise, who do you raise from? How many people do you want to raise from? These are business questions. So at Atrium, we're combining the two expertise because on the entrepreneur side, we have, you know, Justin who started six companies, sold one for a billion dollars to Amazon, you know, and he also, as a YC partner, formerly like advised 131 companies. Personally, like our own Series A that we're closing right now is composed of you know 92 investors strategically as well. So like we have so much advice to share on that end. And then we have law partner from one of the top firms, Oric. He's done personally like 200 plus Series A's himself. So the legal needs that come up with it, right? So we're trying to package those learnings into one sort of like prep package to bridge the gap between entrepreneurs leaving incubators and then um, raising their first round. By doing that, we hope to get to know everyone and then grow with them as a company and serve as their legal counsel. Cool. I mean, as we're thinking about some of our potential legal questions, I'm going to ask you for some advice and see (laughs) if, if you can help us answer it. So we're thinking about getting incorporated. We haven't incorporated yet. And there's many different states to get incorporated in and many different types of incorporations. For Fish Sauce as an entity, knowing that it's going to start as a podcast and potentially grow into potentially a hospitality business and maybe eventually into a venture arm for supporting Asian Americans, what type of incorporation would you recommend for us? Wow. <laughs> Wait, am I getting paid for that? Yeah. I hate to add on another question, but for those who are actually having a side hustle, yeah. when is the right time to have that corporate hygiene and clean up all the mess of like incorporating at the yeah. right time? So I'm going to put my entrepreneur hat. And also I need to practice the whole talking about a disclaimer real fast. Like, oh, hello, this is not a legal service, <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a suggested, you know, uh, course of action. Please don't do this at home, okay. <laughs> essentially, right? I, I, I do believe that when you're just getting ready to go, the, the legal issues are still complex. They're, the legal issues are complex from day one until whatever, right? Until like IPO, really. However, it's really just what is the priority of them and will they become a priority? And honestly, the priority for you at first is to figure out 
everything that is not legal. So getting legal is somewhere in between like um, getting the business card or getting an office, frankly. So if you feel like you, here, here's, here's a test, okay? Let's like establish a test um, on the air. So if you feel your business is doing well enough to justify paying for a WeWork co-working space, right? <laughs> then you should probably formalize that because you, that's an indicator that you're pretty serious. Like you are getting office space. You're going to have a client facing presence now that is not your home or your garage or whatever. Right. And you're having, you're, you have an office commercial lease, you have an office address. So obviously you are like pretty serious about this. And if you are, then you're more likely to be successful and continue to add relationships to your idea, like a co-founder or a you know employee or whatever. If you think about it, legal is just a way of managing all your relationships and then making them formalized, right? Like so, um, it becomes more important as more people enter into the company's life. So at first, everyone is just you, not that important, you know, and nothing can't be fixed at that early of a stage on. But the more relationships you accrue, the messier it gets as people's expectations are misaligned and whatnot. Super helpful. And the last question we usually ask our guests is what is your fish sauce? What is your secret sauce? Both <laughs> figuratively and literally, what's the actual sauce you would eat too? So both. Wait, is this like actual like Asian sauce that I love? What is any type of sauce that you love? Oh, oh yeah. my God. Okay. I would say I love the taste of fish sauce, but man, the smell is just... <laughs> Salt and Straw, the famous ice oh, cream yeah. chain in the West, no actually announced in LA a fish sauce ice cream. So it's becoming a worldwide phenomenon really <laughs> oh my quickly. God. So mine would be mayo aioli. Oh. Yeah. Or, or like sriracha aioli, right? Ooh. Like it's just, I can put that on everything. I mean, it's really great. I don't know if that's a sauce, but it's, okay. it's a sauce. It right? counts. It's a condiment. It counts yeah. if you want to count. <laughs> So that was literally the sauce, but how about figuratively? Yeah, I think it's persistence. If you look at my, what we call emotional runway, right? I, I don't think that people ever fail because of funding and whatnot. That's my personal opinion. But I think that it's the emotional reaction to those events that can cause you to feel depleted and then to fold, right? So keeping up that emotional um, health and, you know, positive attitude and just like extending your emotional runway as bad things happen and good things happen is just incredibly important to an entrepreneur's life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fish Sauce. If you'd like to hear more about Bebe, follow her on Twitter at Bebe Chui. For a behind-the-scenes look and special surprises, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and join our email newsletter on our website. If this episode resonated with you, please leave a review on iTunes. More importantly, please share this episode with one of your friends. Finally, shout out to our editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in every single episode of Fish Sauce. What's your secret sauce?